Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. I have a few quick notes before we get started, as usual. Uh, I know I'm starting to sound like a bit of a broken record, but I'm still behind on transcripts. But today, while I was editing this episode, I managed to sit upright at the table for two hours without pain. And since neck pain is the whole reason that I'm behind on transcripts in the first place, I think this means that I'll be able to make a serious dent over the next week or so. Speaking of podcast editing, the video chat program threw a couple tantrums during this episode that created some funny pauses. I've tried to edit them all out, but if you notice a jump or a pause, I promise that you didn't miss anything. And once again, thank you all for bearing with me while I learn about sound editing. Today, I'm talking to Rosalind Jaffe about multiple sclerosis, ulcerative colitis, and finding purpose and even working while managing chronic illness. Rosalind actually wrote a book about this very topic called Women Work and Autoimmune Disease that draws on her own experiences and her experience working as a chronic illness coach. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. I like to start by asking people about their health as a kid. So were you healthy when you were younger? What a great question. Thank you. I was healthy. Um, I definitely was healthy and I had a brother who wasn't. So I'm very aware of the difference. Mm -hmm. Asthma and he would get sick and didn't get better. But I was a healthy child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like active and not thinking about it, basically, right? That's what it means. Oh, no, never. And um, the one thing that did happen that shaped me for many years was I had stomach aches in Mm. my middle school. And it was a time when I was having emotional problems, you know, having struggling with friends. Mm -hmm. Oh, I even get that part confused. No, actually, I think this was even earlier. This was when I was in elementary school. So there's nothing going on. Mm-hmm. Just were, young and were the school nurse. And basically, my mother took me to the doctor. And he said, well, and whether he said it, or whether I dreamt this, or she said my mother said it, but it basically it's in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. That shaped my relationship to physicians to healthcare for a really long time until and I'll tell you that's part of the story later on but yes it really I did not want to go someplace where I wasn't believed yeah yeah and that's informed those first few years of getting a diagnosis I believe it that it can really it's powerful that feeling of thinking that you're going to an expert who isn't going to listen to you. It can really shape. Well, especially when you're eight. Now I'm realizing I was eight years old. That's yeah. great. I mean, I had, I it, at the, and it was only later that I realized. This. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, and so from there, it sounds like things were rolling along pretty rolling along. Yes. I, in my early twenties, I developed back pain. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing I had been a, a dancer and I was almost a, I was very serious ballet dancer. And I, so I had been very physical, 
and done a lot of things, but I was now a darkroom assistant. Um, that was my major in college. And standing on my feet sent me into spasms. And that was the first real setback. Mm -hmm. uh, I still didn't go to doctors. I remember trying acupuncture, different things. Um, but that was the first health issue that I had in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. And spasms in your back? Like oh, my back, my neck. It was quite severe. And to this day, a genetic component within my family. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and I, mean, I, I had no idea what to do with it. Any yeah. Of it. it really had nothing to do with what happened later. So my story is that when I was 28 years old, I had been dating my husband. I knew him for a month. Well, I knew him longer. Dating my husband for about a month. And I developed urinary infections. I never had had that. And then just around the time in, so I guess it was like six months later, I got numbness in a finger. In one finger. In one finger. And my husband was a medical student. Oh, that's yeah. convenient, maybe. Said I would, well, it, that be, convenient is an understatement, but <laughs> someone who didn't like doctors mm -hmm. but that was really good for me because he was an unusual medical student in my mind but also it it's it, it, so he immediately hooked me up and got me to get an MRI and so things went on like this and I had numbness and we didn't know what was going on then we got married a year later a year later a year and a half later and on our honeymoon I developed numbness throughout my entire body. It was spreading. Okay. And that would be really jarring if it had just been in a finger, basically, for quite just a while. And going down the finger. And now it was going throughout my body. And we got back and started doing tests. And nothing, at those days, they didn't have good um, ways of figuring out what was going on. There were no MRIs. And the prognosis were, were all bad things, worse than what the diagnosis eventually was. Mm -hmm. And it's middle of August. Jake is in the middle of, he's just started his internship yeah. right after honeymoon. So he is completely wiped out. We're out on a really hot summer day in August and we're taking a run. I didn't slow down one bit. We used to play racquetball. I ran, I danced. And we're out taking a run, and I stumbled and fell to the ground. And as I'm starting to stand up, I realized that everything was, the world was getting a little darker. Mm -hmm. I also didn't have any energy. Mm -hmm. My arms were really dragging. And I, my arms would move, but my legs weren't. Limped home, literally. He practically carried me over the threshold. My legs just weren't working. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it being doctor at this point in interns figured out it was MS mm -hmm. and it was process of elimination bedridden and developed and became literally blind in, in one eye the left eye mm -hmm. ridden for a couple of months and now we had this diagnosis and I remember at the time I was seeing a family practitioner who was a pretty alternative guy I knew him before I met my husband mm -hmm. and he told me, oh, it, it's probably not MS. And 
don't let yourself go down that rabbit hole. You're going to be fine. Okay, which maybe could be helpful. But luckily I had my husband who I trusted and still do more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. That was it. But I still found myself thinking, do people believe me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how do I, what's the proof required almost? Yeah. And there is proof now, though there are people who have all of the symptoms and it still doesn't show on an MRI. Mm -hmm. Lucky enough. And I was later on. Mm -hmm. For me, I went back to work, tried to go back to my life as I assumed I'd go back to my life as I'd known it. There was no information out there around any of this. And were there any, like, was there a treatment protocol that you were following? The treatment that was out there was prednisone. It was the only one. Okay, just prednisone. Heavy duty steroids. And I, fortunately, Jake got me in to see a great neurologist who said to me, look, um, Here's the good news. You are learning what most people get don't don't get to learn until they're quite old. That your body is vulnerable and that things happen. Yeah. Don't go out and live your life and don't forget to smell the roses. <laughs> like he said, I loved him. Yeah. And not want to put me on prednisone. He said, This is your first exacerbation. Prednisone's a pretty dip heavy duty drug. Let's wait to see what happens. Mm-hmm. I did get better. I got fully better for six months. Yeah. And then I had a flare again. But my flares from then on were relatively mild. And when you say you got better, did all of your symptoms clear up or did some all stuff stick around? All of them. So I say. Left finger never got better. Okay. Other than that, the urinary infections continued but nothing else mm-hmm. good six to eight months so fall and spring get sick and then that spring I had a flare my leg was numb mm-hmm. it was motor for me it was always numbness okay and I was at that point a I worked as a photographer and um a lot of video equipment and within two and so I would get these periodic flares and then get better Mm -hmm. symptoms would recede and they would come out of nowhere and still my doctor did not want to put me on medication because I was getting better each time and he said hold this it's a this is a heavy duty one like let's save it for when things are more given what happened to me later on I was very happy and (laughs) back because it is a toxic drug mm-hmm. so eventually I started changing jobs I needed to I couldn't do that physical work because when I wasn't well I wasn't reliable right um, for maybe a month two months where I couldn't heal I dropped a camera one day I mean different things would happen yeah so I started making these switchback career turns and I, I called it like going here, here, all in that same career path, becoming a producer. And then I was teaching multimedia at a university. Um, along the way, I had a child and that went fine the first time. Mm-hmm. The second time, it didn't go as well, only in that I lost a lot of weight. But, mm-hmm. I, could, but I, at that point, had severe back pain all the time. I think my body was just overloaded. Marry my child. 
So it was, those were very rough years. And then when I turned 30, I developed another autoimmune disease. Now, mind you, at this point, MS still, you couldn't see it unless diagnostic tool and mine, and they didn't try it again with me, where they, they it was dye. They would, they would um, try, I forget what it was called, but it wasn't an MRI and would inject dye. But we never bothered because I had all these symptoms. I still was living with something where we didn't have a way to know that that what it was. And then I, I happened to get, um, I was having some trouble with my bowels and went to see a gastroenterologist who said, oh, by the way, you've got ulcerative colitis. You've Actually, got ulcerative colitis. The first time, yeah. So and this I is about now, 12 years after. It was just about 12 years. Okay. I turned 40. Yeah. And so now I'm in my early 40s. I continued teaching for another year. I had two young children, a great marriage, and I was totally bedridden with the ulcerative colitis. Okay, so once that? It actually, it got diagnosed. It was diagnosed in those days at first as Crohn's because that's what it looked like. Okay. So I was again dealing with MS. We hadn't done an MRI ever yet. They weren't really out. And now I had a disease which was labeled Crohn's, which is not curable. Right. Can't take, it, it, it's just, there's no way you just medicate it. Yeah. And also with prednisone a lot of the time. Yes. So now I was on prednisone all the time. And it, I would just bounce from 20 to 80 back and forth. I could never get off it. And we were doing all of these other immunotherapy drugs. Mm-hmm. And I had to stop work altogether. I literally would just, my bowels would just shoot out of me. Mm-hmm. I had no control because I also had had nerve damage in that whole area. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that because at that point, we did have an MRI. Okay. It showed up and you could see there was lots of damage. So it, I was a mess. Yeah. And mostly in bed a lot. Yeah. And I was lucky I applied for social security disability. I wanted to keep earning some money mm-hmm. and I was so bad off that I got it the first time around. People don't usually get it that easy. That's true. That's what I know about it is a lot of people end up needing an advocate or a lawyer yep. to go through two, three, four rounds of applications. Right. Yeah. I, so, I didn't need it, which is a blessing because I would never have had the I, I felt guilty taking it on some levels yeah. because poor. For me, it, but we had lost my income, which had been significant. Mm-hmm. I still felt guilty taking it. Yeah. And I also didn't have the energy to apply, have applied again, and that stayed yeah. with me as the years went on. Yeah. But that, was, but that check actually was really important because I got it based upon my earning, mm. not earning anything. Right. I didn't feel I could be much of a mother. I didn't show up at soccer games or at the time I couldn't do the carpools. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that was physical. Yeah. And there were numerous, really embarrassing for my kids, episodes where mom would just shit in her pants. Yeah. Mom would try to make it normal, but. Right. Even if it's something that you yourself can kind of decide to get used to, however that yeah. works, 
kids I can only imagine who are already so so sensitive about everything that their parents do like just want it to be everything to be normal yeah everything to be normal yeah and that would and be actually, a really I, tough layer it is but you know what it was very helpful mm-hmm. because it also i then what i did was create our lives to normalize them mm-hmm. i tried to normalize everything so in the middle of all of this going on i we got a dog i mean that's the, who happened to pee all over the house <laughs> i just everything we could do we were like everyone else and when my kids would get upset that mom couldn't do this or that i would talk about someone else and look what that that child's you know living her she's got two moms and no one else has two moms and can you imagine what your friend chrissy feels about that or the other one with this and you know mm. a disabled sibling and i would just say different things constantly trying to do that and it helped me yeah it made me normalize this yeah like this yeah. idea of the normal family is made up it's made up and yeah. we don't have to try to fit exactly into it no and everyone most people not everyone but most people have challenges that you can't see yeah so we would t- talk about that a lot and i really was aware that it helped me mm-hmm. i couldn't get bummed out i couldn't get depressed i could get bummed out but i couldn't be depressed mm-hmm. as much as i could at least on the emotional plane and i had to be authentic with them it wasn't a word people used at that and it's still overused but i did yeah because this was not something that could be ignored right and at the same time, I missed work desperately. Mm-hmm. I realized how much I loved to work until I couldn't work. I never had envisioned myself as a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. Wasn't never. for you. I didn't want it. I didn't have one myself, and it was never what I wanted. And so I was doing a lot of volunteer work, mm-hmm. mostly justice world because that's where I where I had been for a lot of my life before kids and eventually found a new career mm-hmm. and what was as that interim so for volunteering what did that look like so that's the interesting thing how did I figure it out well I was always someone whereas if someone said you need this I would show up and do it and I always specific feeling of you should do things so first I got involved through, I'm Jewish, and through the Jewish world of social activism in certain social activist kinds of work, Black Jewish issues and, st- and working in inner city, uh, with inner city, um, not Black Jewish, but black, working in the Black community. Mm-hmm. And that before, and it was comfortable. I allowed myself to do it was I realized I could that if I couldn't show up, I can just cancel. But it wasn't like when I was teaching in college, if I couldn't show up, the classes were canceled. Right. The impact was lower. Yes, the impact. And I that 
felt good. Yeah. And I also didn't have to do a lot. Mm -hmm. Very sick at this point. So I didn't have to, I could sign up for as much as I wanted to. And then I started getting involved with my kids' schools because I felt one should. It engaged me. And I got involved once again in social justice issues, but also PTA level. And just because it was a way to be involved and do, mm -hmm. I thought I had control over my schedule. And what I started to realize was I was really doing a lot more than I thought I could do. Mm -hmm. I go to meetings downtown. I remember lobbying the governor for something, and I literally shit all over myself and I went to the bathroom and I washed off my pants and I went back out my pants were wet but no one noticed and that's what I did and yeah. I found that I could do things and so the question is what do I go back and do and I couldn't go back if I was going to work again I couldn't go back to what I was doing it was way too physical mm -hmm. I, and I had been a classroom teacher along the way. I loved that. Everything I had done had been just too physical. So I sort of stumbled into things um, with my advocacy work, not advocacy, but my active activism work. I had learned about mediation, so and I'd always wanted to be a lawyer as an advocate. And so I became a mediator, and I started working for friends who... A couple of friends did organizational work, organizational development was in those days. And they would hire me because I could do, I had certain talents. I was cobbling things together and landed eventually sort of making myself up. Um, through, I, I found the mediation really bumping up against things I didn't want to bump up against. I didn't have the right credentials or and I didn't want that. So I made myself up and I, because people had asked me to coach, mm -hmm. it was reason it wasn't something that people did, but I would be working with senior leaders in these organizational development. And they would ask me if I could help them. And I knew nothing about this. I knew nothing about being a leader. I knew about business because of some of the work I had done when I was a photographer and where I worked and how. But I was just always a quick study. Mm -hmm. Along the way, I had, I, uh, I had gotten really sick. And I mean, part of why I didn't go back for another degree was A, the money. I didn't want to spend money on myself. And B, I didn't even have the energy. I was getting sicker. So I pushed. I, we had the colon out. And they did realize, oh, it is all. This looks like this is an ulcerative colitis colon. And then, not, okay. So it was upon removal that they actually changed the diagnosis. Yes. Which is interesting. Yes. My gastroenterologist still didn't it. Still argued the case. Okay. But, um, I felt very gratified. And I opted not to have a resection because I knew I had a lot of nerve damage. So I just said, I'm going to live with the bag. I'm mm -hmm. live with it as it is. It was hard a lot of getting used to yeah. but not better that point so now i'm starting to think i'm gonna i was had a partner and we were working together for a while and i'm building this business of coaching organizational leadership and a lot of conflict 
mediation kinds of stuff. And we also did an, more, we now we're doing an MRI every year and the MS was getting worse. Okay. Got worse through all of this. So around that time, I also started taking an MS medication. And I, that was a turning point because I responded very well to that medication. Nothing, no medication ever helped the ulcerative colitis, only taking that colon out. It was really bad. But, but the MS was never obviously that aggressive. Mm -hmm. There had been damage already. I, 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 we knew that there was damage that wasn't going to repair. But I started taking medication and I would say it took about 15 years of being on medication, but I went into remission wow. for forever, for now, since then. And yeah. so that's about ten, eight years now wow. since I completely in remission. And so on no MS flares. Been, yes, it's been 10 years. No MS flares of any kind, um, which I was living with up until about 10 years ago. Okay. Wow. And so it had been, it sounds like very variable as a disease for you. And so yes, relapsing, remitting, but yes, it was relapsing, remitting, but, and I didn't get new symptoms, but then when I was developing other problems, so right. I did. You had something else to focus on. It sounds like. Oh, it was something. Yeah. Significant problems in this eye, that same eye with the optic neuritis. I, in my early fifties, I started having a lot of issues. Eventually, it was um, glaucoma, and I had really hard to treat glaucoma. Mm -hmm. so I've had multiple surgeries and lots of medication with that. The bladder, I got to a point where they, there was nothing that, I was just so sick. I, I developed a neurovirus, and there was just nothing they could do. Um, and luckily I found another option, the stimulator, and that made a difference so that I stopped getting bladder infections all the time because that was really dangerous. What was that? I would get very, very ill with that. Mm -hmm. And then I've had a lot of mobility problems. With mobility, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like there's so many different tr kind of tracks that things were happening on while you're yes. also like Perry parenting and married I just tried to combine those words and then volunteering and then building a business right. so I know we're still also catching up to present but what was pacing like at that time or what did you need to do what did you discover that you needed to do in order to kind of keep going did you become more responsive to when your body needed to rest or what does that look like for you or what did that look like for you pacing has always been a challenge. My husband would say that when I slowed down, it was what most people operated at. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I just know myself. Um, I learned early on that I, that idea of normalizing was critical to me. So it meant being the one who hosted Thanksgiving, who hosted um, all of the this events in our house, you know, Passover, Russia. I did all of that and I loved to cook. So in the early days, I would just do it all and be exhausted. Mm -hmm. And what I found as I got older and wiser is it wasn't, that wasn't smart. Mm -hmm. 
I learned to a, give more stuff away to other people to do. And I tried to find the balance the same way I had with my work. So the idea was, how much can I do? I know what I want to get done. I want to do this thing. So what do, what's it going to take to get there? Make it happen. Mm-hmm. I really want to have this New Year's Eve party in my house. What do I have to do? It might not be natural to me, but to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Spreadsheets for every meal, for all the meals, and I would plan out to the detail, and I'd start cooking, cooking months in advance. So that helped, and it helped in terms of my kids, but there's always, in terms of their schedules and what they needed, there's always stuff that comes up that you don't expect. Sure. And that's the hardest part of all of it is living with disappointment um, and trying not to take more on that I could than I could do. What I finally got to, I would say only in the last 10 years, is realizing that that's my life is about life is about living with disappointment and that I don't have to be upset with myself. I'm disappointed right. to be upset about the feeling. Yeah. And the feeling about the feelings. And that I don't have to be upset that I hadn't thought I could do it and I had overcommitted. Because there's a lot of times that I just don't know. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And you also it's I'm interested. People do talk about this sometimes. The way that yeah, our own emotions make things worse, like our expectations. So I'm disappointed and now I'm upset that that has happened and it can so easily spiral into like, I hate that my body is doing this to me and ruining every part of my life. Like it's so easy to go from this one moment to this really terrible conclusion almost. Yeah. And the other piece of it is, you said, that a lot of us do. I did it. I'll do it, but not, not anymore. But I did it for a long time, and I hear it in my clients a lot. Is when you're a, when you took on too much, and you have to disappoint someone, yourself or someone else, angry at yourself for taking on too much. Mm-hmm. That, you know, so you're now beating yourself up, and that's where you get stuck. Yeah. When I'm just with the disappointment and the pain, I can live with that. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Realized that. that. Stick in my head. Yeah. Well, it's really important to know. Mhm. When that's the whole notion of being the moment. Right. And we're not thinking about just what we're experiencing right now. That's when all the and and when you you know given the lives we lead, it's so tricky because it's also a lot of times. It's when I got sick last week with the stomach virus, everyone understands that, mm-hmm. you know, you get, you get better. Right. And there's no question I can't get out of bed. Yeah. Second day I could question it, but then I knew, no, I can't. When you're sick with any of these kinds of things, I mean, when I was running fevers, one of the things I liked about the ulcerative colitis, I had fevers. Mm-hmm. I was shitting my brains out. No one could deny that. Right. Uh, you know your your fatigue, your your pain. 
yeah. much harder. Yeah, and there's no external signs of that happening. And so you end up kind of playing this game with yourself of, is it really happening? Is it really bad enough that I need to respond to it? Is it, is it, is it? Yeah. Is it really happening? And I push myself a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then yes. when you can't all, then you're dealing with everyone else's response to, oh, can't you push yourself a little bit more? Mm-hmm. And your own response to it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when it gets just so confusing. Yeah. It's a very like naughty thing. Um, yeah. Okay. So that was hap- That's kind of looking at then. And also I'm sure lots of things that you've learned into the present. So you decide to start a business and was that around the same time that you had started the new MS medication? No, the MS medication started right after the ulcerative colitis, after I took out the the surgery. Okay. Well, I had several surgeries. So it was a year of surgeries. And then I happened to see my neurologist because I was having trouble walking still. Mm -hmm. And I had motor problems. I really don't have motor problems, but there was nerve damage and I couldn't feel whatever Mm -hmm. it was. I saw my neurologist who I hadn't seen in years um, because this was taking up. Right. So he said, let's do another MRI. We saw how far it had progressed and that there was a lot of, and um, he put me on the medication. So I was like 46 at that time. And I couldn't, the first one worked and I had sight reactions. One and that one really, I really did find that when I when when that happened, I wasn't relapsing remitting. I was just always in a flare, and I hadn't even realized that I was so sick. Mm-hmm. It kind of snuck up on you into relapsing remitting, which is great. I you, now we started to see the pattern that I could get better with, with medication. Mm-hmm. In the case with ulcerative colitis, right, right, there wasn't medication or there wasn't medication that you responded to I didn't respond to anything I was just too it was intractable but this I did respond mm-hmm. and I, it, I wasn't fine it, I still had a chronic illness it would flare but I could live with that yeah and it wasn't that much worse my baseline stayed the same yeah gotcha gotcha that started happening and then just was going down yeah okay Okay. So then, so then you are, um, as you're starting the business with a partner, yes. um, what kind of a time commitment was that since it can be a lot of one, I know. Yeah. I remember at one point, so now my kids are, one's in high school. No, no. One's in middle school, one's in high school. So I was probably putting in, in the beginning, just 20 to 20 to 25 hours. And that was manageable. It was manageable. Yep. It was definitely manageable. And we were doing this business as mediators and doing a little bit of other work. But and then we had, and I started doing my own work with people. I would say it was still 20 to 25 hours a week. Within so five years of that, and I started seeing I could really do organizational development. I had taken courses and I had done some training, a, a fair amount of training in it. And 
I was starting to see that as a business. I never wanted to develop my own business. So I had to learn how to even build my own business. And I did. I set out to do that. And that's when things kicked in. My kids were now away at school. And I was working 60 hours a week at that point and loving it. And loving it. All I was doing was work, building the business, learning my craft, and loving it. And did you have to uh, travel very much for this? Just even commuting? Were you going to meetings? Was it no. mostly at home? Oh, I did. I did, actually. And whereas back when I had the ulcerative colitis, my first job was back at work was as an inner city school. And that was a 30-minute ride. I was too exhausted. Actually, I had a consulting job with state government. That was an hour each way. I could do it by that no, point. That was fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't on steroids. And I had energy mm -hmm. at that point. I was really, that was the healthiest I'd ever been. Mm -hmm. like I want to acknowledge just as like an extra point for people who might be listening, who also may have gotten sick in their 20s. This was, this was in your 40s, I think you said, right? 50s. 50s, so, right. So things can change. 45, the ulcerative colitis, 45, the colon came out. Okay. 50, I'm now really... Having flares, but still really, I remember on my 50th birthday, I said, oh, I haven't been this healthy in 25 years. Mm -hmm. And that, I felt like, you know, I felt like I'd gone to heaven, died and gone to heaven. Mm -hmm. Like such a lucky person. Um, so that's, so I developed the business and I was earning money, good money. And I've had several clients with illness, mm -hmm. coaching clients. And, you know, coaching was still a very new thing. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. One thing that I did, that when I started working again, I was this mediation coordinator in schools when I went back and got the first paid job. So this is before the colon's out. And I realized I had to do something that I really cared about. Mm -hmm. I, I'd love everything I'd done before, but it, it wasn't my passion. But working and doing anything that had to do with social justice really mattered to me. And that got me out of bed even when I was so sick. And I knew that that had to be the case. Yeah. I switched and I developed, I realized there's this whole need for somebody to help people, to work with people, not help, but work with people with chronic illness mm -hmm. in the workforce because I knew it wasn't something you talked about. Right. I no help. So it was around 2000, was right. It wasn't, wasn't long after 9-11, I remember. Okay. I decided to switch the business focus, started working. I still had some other clients. It was mostly, that was the direction, working with people with chronic illness. And that's what I've been doing since. And, and then about seven or eight years of good health started declining. Mm -hmm. In the last 10 years, I've been a lot rougher. I've been harder. Yeah, but my baseline, like right now I'm in a very, today is a healthy day and I've had that. I used to have ongoing glaucoma, mm -hmm. um, but I'm doing quite well. Yeah, and so, and that's over almost, so it sounds like if it's since 2001, that's now approaching 20 years, which yes. is nuts also to me from right. knowing how time works. But um, right. so, so for 20 years, you've been focused on the coaching professionally 
Um, and then does that allow you, you must be able to kind of try to adapt as your, based on what your body is doing, if you've had some ups and downs in that time. How is so that? Here's, you know, what's really interesting about that. So along the way I had my passions outside of work and my family and friends and everything were gardening. I had tremendous gardens, even when I was so sick and cooking and I just, whatever did happen was I didn't have the energy. I couldn't do either very well. And my back never was great in the bending. Mm-hmm. So I give that up. But the other passion still is social justice. So three years ago, I decided, well, most people retire at this stage. I'm not going to retire, but I am going to cut back. So I cut my business back and started getting very involved in community organizing um, through interfaith work. And- all of a sudden, I was in a situation again where I had to show up for other people. Mm-hmm. And my work, I sit at my computer, I'm either writing or I'm on the phone with a client or doing this in horrible shape. Last year, I broke my ankle. That's a whole nother. I just, it had nothing to do with anything. I just tripped, the dog pulled me and really shattered it. Ugh. But I am so good at doing this stuff that when I had to wait a week for surgery, the night before surgery, I had a client call. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. I hadn't moved in a week and I could do it because I knew how to. Yeah. Energy and I didn't have to go anywhere. And once again, whereas this other work, people have to come and meet with me or I couldn't show up. It's brought it, it. When I first started doing it, it brought it all back again. Mm-hmm. because I i mean there have been times I've been sick with a urinary infection or something and I go to something big that I had helped organize and it's just it's just and so I realized there was a reason I chose what I did without even necessarily beginning figuring it out but this part I did I knew when I developed my business and I developed it in this way, coaching, that mostly it would be phone. Mm-hmm. Whereas even organizational culture, for a different reason, but I realized I don't have to show up. And it's, I do it no matter. It was rare that I had. Yeah, that something is going on that would be so. That my brain wasn't working. Yeah, disruptive. I, it always worked. Yeah. And I think something that strikes me about that too is it's like when you have brain fog or cognitive fatigue, it's interesting because for me at least, and I think this is true for other people, and it's kind of what I'm also hearing from you, some things still work. Yes. So on days for me, for example, on days when I really can't write, like if I sat down to write, it would just not make a sentence or would not make a sentence that I liked, Mm -hmm. I can still do this, which is like... I can fully talk to somebody. I can talk to somebody for two hours, even if I show up in pain and tired and drained. Like the way that my brain is wired, this works even when the other things don't. And it's, it's interesting how you can find those. It feels like a loophole almost. A loophole. What a great way of putting it. Yeah. A way to get through it. Mm -hmm. Show up and you're in pain. Do you find that, fully present though to what's going on and interact yeah for me for me the way that my body is 
Yes. In conversation, an engaging conversation. So it's one thing to be making small talk at a networking event or something. I would say, no, (laughs) the discomfort will override the ability to focus on a conversation. But talking about something that is engaging for me, which health stories are, but personal stories in general are, since that's what part of what I did before. I like, I don't even notice because sometimes I'll get off of these calls and I'll be like, oh wait, no, I'm really tired and my arms are buzzing today, but I haven't been thinking about it right. while I'm in it. So it kind of, it overrides, but I'm sure everybody's experience of that is a little bit different. Well, yes. What helps it override? Mm-hmm. I Many of my clients, because we're talking about them, they're in, in rough shape. They're in that brain fog place. I I actually wrote a book when I was quite healthy. And I remember thinking in these last few years, because yes, writing is just not something that's distracting. Mm-hmm. But it's the engagement. I've always felt engagement, no matter what, if it engages you more than your body. Yeah. You come out of your body. There's a downside, and the downside is so like I'm going to stand up right now because we're, I'm engaged, but I forget to stand. And so the downside is that for many of us, we ignore. Yep. I've had so many people I talk with say, I really paid for that afterwards. Yeah. I, I did that and I paid for it. I never thought of it in those terms, but I paid for it. I didn't see cause and result the same way, but that's my body. And I'm glad I didn't because mm-hmm. there is something about that that is self-flagellating. You know, I paid for it versus it was a choice. So I try to play with those different feelings that if I do this, I probably can't do that. Mm-hmm. The choice I'm making. Yeah. But, you know, there's still, certainly when there's a new thing, like with the glaucoma, such as with the glaucoma and finding, once again, I've got this disease that is just not, I'm on that far end of the spectrum. It's easy to get down. Yeah. And then I find my husband's really good at this point. Many years to figure out how to do it, but it pull me into something else, engage me. And that whenever I, and when I do, mm-hmm. and I, like redirect. Yeah. 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 And then that also brings me to another question about, I'll, I'll say self-care, which is a helpful and trendy word, but, yes. um, but it's real. So just relating to that over the many years of going through different health experiences, I'll say, because I don't know the right word for all these tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do? And this could be anything. What have you found that is helpful for you? Whatever that means. So yeah, yeah. Oh my God. There's a huge array. So early on, I discovered this is I used to bite my cuticles. And I hated that. And I so I'd be I decided someone said, why don't you get a manicure and they can so I had a manicure done. I always thought, oh, a manicure. And I didn't bite my cuticles. 
And I said, that's something I could do something about. So I would literally drop my kids off at school, had to be at class teaching a class at BU at a certain time. And in between, start having manicure. And that was, was one piece of self-care. So, and looking back, I would say, and just recently I realized it's something that matters. I started paying attention to how I look. I had never really spent any time on makeup or anything. I was young, you, you didn't have to, but <laughs> the time I grew up, nothing at all. I started caring about how I looked. And I started putting energy into clothing and different things. And only re recently did I realize why. And that was something I could also take charge of. Yeah. Like when people said, oh, you know, you look exhausted, you look tired. So, or even just, even though that I was tired, I, that didn't cheer me up. Right. The thing was that I really devoted myself to trying to be as healthy as I could. And yeah, did mean eating right? Sure. I mean, by then food was still something that people were talking about, but I never found that what I ate, certainly with the, interestingly enough, the arthritis food was never a trigger. Um, I mean, my ulcerative Oh, that was the other thing I developed was gastritis. Really significant gastritis. That was, that was the, I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> that was really bad. It yeah. has been bad. So I, but I did from early on, I did acupuncture. I did um, herbals, exercise. So just keeping my body going. And then eventually it was yoga and Pilates. I had done yoga, but then yoga, and now it's Pilates. But every day I had an exercise and I had meditated my whole life, my adult life, 30 or decades. Mm -hmm. so I go in and out of that. And especially now more than ever, I spend time trying to do that and having that discipline, especially when I'm finding I need it. Mm -hmm. But those things, all about what I can do for my body. Right. And I will pursue whatever it takes. And I've always, and that's how I was with the MS, getting a neurologist I, I, I hear that I could trust with um, ulcerative colitis, by, you know, making, pushing beyond what the doctor thought I should be doing. Mm -hmm. And since then, with the gastritis, I, I will do what I have to do, take whatever medication, prescription drugs. It's worked for me, most of all that stuff. Supplements made a big difference, but I do them too. Yeah. I figure I'm going to throw everything at this always. Yeah. It's like you want to stack the deck in your favor, even though sometimes you can't tell. If you're doing five things, you don't know that all five of those things are effective. But right. well, I try, and I'm really pretty good at that, and that is important. Mm -hmm. So, if I have a new supplement with my acupuncturist gave me, I give it time, and then if it doesn't work, I stop. Yeah, you know, I can tell with a prescription drug pretty quickly how it's affecting me. Yeah, um, but it is, it's it, and it's balancing it, so you also afford it, yeah. even the out of pocket costs. With I'm on certain of this medication for my bladder, which is not protocol so I have to pay for it but I'm fortunate I can afford it 
That's where my social justice work is on healthcare and legislation. So I, these things all fall in. I know how long. Yeah. And, and I resent that also I've had incredible access. Yeah. And healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. And so that has only made me more part of my feelings, self-care, but it does it. My feeling of social justice is I, no, I will accept that I have that access. I will try to make it that other people can too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think even a very small thing, but speaking of the cost and access and things that help, uh, somebody that I interviewed this past week. So I know when they're published, I have no idea whether this will be a person that comes out before or after you. But someone I interviewed recently was saying that at one point she went to see, I think, a naturopath or a functional medicine practitioner, and they gave her a lot of supplements. And at first she didn't think they were helping. Normal story. But she went off and found that some of them were extremely helpful for her. But her reality was that she couldn't afford to stay on them because none of them are covered. And so she is on some prescription medication that's covered by insurance, but like there's these things that she knows that she could be doing. And I'm sure that she's thinking about and working towards, but, but like, these are the choices that people are making with with everything around caring for your body is what can I do? What can I afford to do with my energy? What can I afford to do with my money? And it's like, absolutely. Yeah. It's hard for people to stack the deck in their favor often. It's I mean, acupuncture, all of these things. And there were times when finances were really tough. I wasn't working or things were worse and kids were in school and I couldn't go to acupuncture as frequently as I wanted to or any number of things. I remember doing biofeedback. There were all kinds of things I could try. And if it wasn't covered, I was a burden. Yeah. And that's right there all the time. You know, my family already is suffering. How can I spend more on me? Yeah, yeah. And especially if I'm not working or I'm not, I'm not bringing in the money that would pay for it is another. And that's what my clients say. I mean, that's why I work with a sliding scale because I get it. On the other hand, that's the key is to feel, but I am worth it. Yeah. I'm investing in myself. It's not quite the right word. I don't like, I, I, this is what I need to do. Yeah. I'm, I am choosing to care for myself. Yes. And this is going to healthier and I will be able to work if I if I can get my body in better shape or if I can develop the skills I will then be able to work and feel like I'm more of a contributor more importantly even if that doesn't happen that was my intention yeah allowing myself not falling into the role of victim Mm -hmm. yeah for me it was deadly yeah it's a tough line sometimes I think tough line very tough line very and um once again there's not a lot of resources out there to help people mm-hmm. what this is is it does promote victimhood yeah you feel like it's all being done to you yeah yeah and you have no control um, this does tie in because you're kind of talking offhand about clients too. what I think is my last question. And then we'll see if there's anything else that's still kind of out there. But I was wondering, so after so long of working with so many different people who are also living with chronic illness, I guess just kind of 
this, I don't know how to phrase this so that it doesn't sound trite, but what have you learned from that? What have you learned from your clients or how has that impacted your own experience? That's a great question. I think what I've learned, and this is not self-promoting. That's okay. You, I mean, you can self-promote if you want. I don't mind. I'm not trying to, and I, I, I'm not. But I have learned how important it is to have a space that's safe. Talk through these things with a friend because it's, it's a way, someone who understands that world you're living in, the dynamics of it. Because it, I remember a friend of mine who is a therapist saying, he asked me, well, do people doing this, do they have to live with chronic illness? And actually, I worked on a project. We had to recruit coaches. And I said, when I was a coach, I didn't have to know the person's business that they do. And even now, whatever, if my client is working, I don't have to understand their business. What I have to understand is what this does to a person internally. Mm-hmm. And how what it's like to work with the external world in that place. Yeah. Unless you've gone through it, it's not something you can read about. So in fact, right now, I'm working on this coaching engagement with grant from the government and we're gonna hire these coaches. And there is something about that lived experience because this, the invisibility of this, the unpredictability and the fact that it's chronic. Yeah. It's not going to get better. It might, it might, but most likely that's not what we're sitting and waiting for when it's a chronic illness, because there's no cure. You might go into remission for a really long time. Yeah. You're living with something, there's no cure. And those three elements are unlike any other loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a unique experience. Yeah, it's such, it's unique in that way. That's why I think people with chronic illness, when I first started doing this work, my book is is called Women Work and Autoimmune Disease. And I wanted it to be about chronic illness, but it was a neurology publisher that did it. Mm -hmm. For me, it doesn't matter what it is you're, you're dealing with. If it's chronic, emotional, physical, whatever part of your body it's affecting, pretty much comes down to those three things that just make it very an unusual experience. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, It's so unique. And I think like this, the piece that really strikes me is that what I think I hear in the cultural narrative or something, we, we like stories where people get better. And when you first get diagnosed with a chronic illness, I think it's very common that you think, okay, now is the time when I get better. Um, And I also think that we as a culture are very kind of quick to divide things into optimistic or pessimistic. And so when you're going, when kind of exactly what you're talking about, like it won't go away. And I think facing that head on in a way that isn't meant to be fatalistic is difficult. And it's difficult to talk about with people who don't understand what you're saying because they want you to have hope. They you want think you to you're get being better. Debbie Downer or, yeah. or a pity party or whereas, no, I'm just being, uh, or even I, times over the years, I would say, well, I'm not, I can't really get to that. I'd like to get there. And someone would say, oh, be, I wanted to strangle them. Yeah. 
I'm not being negative. I'm being realistic. This is my reality. And it's just crazy making. Yes, it is. I yearn for another word that is not about hoping to get better, but is about something that I kind of feel like you've done and been talking about, which is like building your life anyway. So you're not waiting. Nobody. We don't. It's not about waiting until the cure comes or you find the exact right combination of supplements and medication and exercise and stretching. It's about going like, how can I move forward today? I always call it thriving while living with chronic pain. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the challenge that we face. And I then I go back to that neurologist. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. It was a lesson I learned really early. And I see that I remember when I would watch my parents and my, my husband's parents getting ill, you know, they hadn't done so it was, oh my God, I can't believe that this is happening in my body. Yeah. You know, would I have given this? I would happily have been unknowledgeable if I could have been. Sure. That said, it's another just, I feel like it it helped me then each time things got, were not so easy. Yeah. This helped helped each roadblock so that it wasn't just blocked, that I could find that loophole, that way to get through it. Yeah, Yeah. there's a resilience. Absolutely. Resilience resilience and i have found resilience there is a reality to that i'm 67 and i don't have the resilience in my body i keep saying that and yet you know i i do in my body but it's all a little hard yeah you're going and it doesn't mean that every day is easy or easier than the last or whatever picture of health we're supposed to be painting Right. Right. And that ability to be resilient, it's a little bit more worn out. But then I find that I go through periods where, huh, I'm surprised I'm doing as well as I am. So nothing about this. It's an, it's a moving target. And before is what have I learned? When people contact me, I'll say, Hey, I got this sliding scale. If you meet, at this point in my life, I know how helpful it is. I never had it. I wished I did. I looked for it. I couldn't find a therapist or somebody who, I actually did find a therapist who did understand it somewhat. Yeah. did the same. She really didn't. It wasn't the same. And I, I just think whatever it is to find people or a place, some place where you are in a community and it's supportive and helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, helpful. I think one thing that's interesting is as the internet has evolved, you know, there are communities on Instagram and Twitter and lots of Facebook groups around any diagnosis that you can imagine. And they all have very different tenors too. You know, some of these support groups are, I would say, difficult (laughs) to be in. Um, And not because I expect everyone to be positive all the time, but they can still get toxic versus like, I love Twitter for this. I think I actually say this on the podcast a lot. I love Twitter for this. I know a lot of people who love Instagram for this. Places where you can honestly talk about all of the good stuff too. Like 
Mm. And people who know what a big deal it is that you, whatever it is, you know, I did half an hour on the recumbent bike today and yesterday, and I tweeted about it. And a lot of people knew what a big deal that was and were responding in kind. And even something, I'm going to call it small. It's both like that makes a difference. But if I, you know, text my friends from college about it, they'll be like, they love me and they don't know why this matters. That they don't know why this matters, right? Yeah. Right. And you can hear that. And it's just, so it's not shared experience. And it's so important to have. Yeah. The isolation of this is one of the hardest pieces. Yeah. And I know that it's different for younger people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just different. And it's more okay to talk about these things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's something that's changed yeah. a lot. Probably also because of internet culture and, you know, yeah, a lot of things. People just talk about differences. I would talk about it and people would look at me like, what's wrong with you that you're talking about this? Yeah. That a lot, but that, to me, that was the only way I could get through it. Yeah, yeah. I'm pro talking about things. Yes. Um, great. Okay, well, so we've covered all of the chronological component and I think most of my questions. Is there anything in your mind that we haven't covered yet? No, not that yeah. I can think. That's okay. I like to make sure because people come in with, you know, notes and ideas sometimes. No, you basically ask great questions and it was a chat in that way. And, but I love not even when we all got together in that round table. Yeah. Of the energy. Um, I think it's really important. It's really great. My daughter, I've got a 31-year-old daughter who lives with and she's who lives with what? Sorry, that cut out too. Oh, sorry. A 31-year-old daughter. She's a veterinarian who lives Mm -hmm. with fibromyalgia. Okay, with fibro, yeah. High school. Um it's interesting watching her navigate the work. Yeah, I bet. She's so much smarter about her life. Some of it's because of living with me and knowing mm-hmm. and it's also just your those she's able to yeah it's just a different world we talk about that so I'm glad for that yeah yeah I'm sure I mean and if like being diagnosed with MS is that is that 40 years is that the math for you or not I guess that wasn't your diagnosis but your first symptoms no yeah First symptom was 40 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So you'll have seen a lot of shifts around on every possible side of it, on the medical side and the community side. And Right. My mother wanted me to quit work. So did my father-in-law and stay home. And my husband said, you know, live in a fishbowl and look at the world from out, you know, outside of you. That's yeah. because she wanted to take care of myself. Yeah. And that was her. So yeah, I see things are really different. Um, what does still strike because I do have some clients who really don't have this and money, certain level of education, and it, it, there is a real white privilege here for for us. Um, yeah. people too. This level of interaction is primarily, you know, middle class, upper middle class, well-educated people. And there's a lot out there 
people who really need this help. Right. Yeah. I mean, being able to like coaching, being able to build a business that is entirely basically intellectual labor. I know there's also emotional labor, but like everything is coming from that in order to to have people trust you. There are a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of privilege in that from all of the things yeah. that you're talking about. And a lot of people. That yeah. I, when I did it, I couldn't work. We knew, but still I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, I couldn't, but so in the end, yes, there's all this privilege. This is an idea that there are people who really need this help. Yeah. Yeah, I need to I get emails from them all the time looking for resources. Like, that's the part that breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is the structure where somebody who isn't able to create a freelance career or a business based on their own skills because of their illness and because of cultural obstacles and, like, all of these reasons that are beyond their control, what are the options in that case? Yeah. It's a tough question. Very limited. Very limited. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's a bigger conversation. Yes, that's the world as we would want it to be. Yeah. Yes. Well, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to episode 30 of No End in Sight. You can find Rosalind online at cicoach.com and facebook.com slash cicoach, or you can find her on Twitter at workwithillness. You can find this show on Instagram at no.end.in.site.pod, and you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at BennisB. Um, I've got so many more stories to share with you. I think I have 13 more recorded just at this very minute. So make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've been enjoying the show, I would be so grateful if you could share a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people know what to expect. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. One of these days, I'm going to get to working on some spring and summer patterns, but I'd love it if you check this out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.